This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there will always be something new to discover on the service. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch, and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hi, this is Michael Snydell, and you are listening to episode 8 of Intermission. Uh, this is a podcast where a guest picks one art house, foreign, or experimental film that is streaming on a service, and we talk about it at length. Uh, today, I am here with uh, Kyle Turner, and we are talking about the 1970 D.A. Pennebaker film, Original Cast Album uh, Company. Uh, Kyle, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, thank you so much for having me, Michael. I am very excited to be doing this. My name is Kyle Turner. I'm a freelance uh, writer and editor based in Brooklyn. I write about film for Paste Magazine, and you can find my writing elsewhere on the internet in publications like Slate, NPR, GQ, and The New York Times. And I'm a Sondheim and company obsessive, so I'm very excited to be doing this. Well, that is that is quite a prolific list of uh, outlets, and I, obviously, I am uh, I'm talking to some, the right person if we're talking about uh, uh, Mr. Sondheim. But first, I'd like to give my thanks to our uh, wonderful sponsors. Mubi. Uh, Mubi is a curated streaming service with an ever-changing collection of hand-picked films that range from new directors to award winners uh, from literally everywhere on Earth. Uh, Every day they have a new film, whether it's from an under-the-radar director that you've been hearing about or a global award winner or cult favorite that you've been trying to see for years. But now not only is there just one film a day, but Mubi also has an incredibly varied library that uh, brings together past collections, um, uh, films from the movie brand, as well as a number of other wonderful things uh, that you could get uh, lost in for uh, way more than days. Um, And uh, case in point, I'd like to uh, talk about today's uh, today's selection, which is uh, the first part of, of the three-part Mariano Linnaeus film, uh, La Flor. As Mubi describes it, uh, ten years in the making, this sublimely playful Argentinian epic is split into three parts of six episodes that each tell different stories with different genres, but the same actresses. Introduced by d- director Mariano Linas himself, a madly entertaining journey worth every minute of its runtime. And if you would like to try a trial 
of uh, Mubi and watch uh, any of the films that I've mentioned or dig into their library, you can go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Now we can get to the review at hand today, which is the aforementioned original cast album company. So, uh, Kyle, to kind of start, uh, why did you want to talk about this film today? Well, because I am obsessed with company to the degree that has become a bit of a bit on online. So any meme that exists, I will turn it into a reference to Sondheim's company. Uh, but I thought it would actually make quite a bit of sense because it was, uh, D.A. Pennebaker died last year. It's debuting on the Criterion Channel in June. I think that's gay rights, personally. Um, <laughs> it was Sondheim's 80th birthday in March, and the new Broadway revival directed by Marion Elliott, which was a transfer of the West End production, which switches the gender of the main character, um, was going to have its opening night on Sondheim's birthday. And it is the 50th anniversary of the original production of Company on Broadway. So it's all these different kind of like time markers. And I think the documentary also serves as like a very good um example of a piece of work that is it itself is itself exploring the difficulty of capturing perfection in art and the search for for performance and truth in performance on film when it's not, when especially kind of in theater it's unable to be replicated in such a way and it's just a it's a film that I think speaks to me in, a, in a, on a very deep level. In addition to its connection to a musical that I deeply love, so I'm very excited to be here talking about it. Yeah, I mean, there really is um, so much that we can. It's not only you know that certain uh, you know a constellation of you know uh, connections between all these things, but I you know. Uh, but D.A. Pennebaker, too, is, you know, so fascinating in the sense that so much of his career was was about um, exploring, you know, uh, live music or trying to understand, you know, personas that have been, you know, made made mythic, you know, whether it's. Mm, yeah. Whether it's, you know, things like Don't Look Back and uh, Monterey Pop and um, Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, it's it's a pretty insane number of, you know, uh, iconoclastic people that uh, Penna Baker, you know, watched at work. Um, yeah. But to to kind of, uh, I, I first want to ask though before we get into this film and particularly Company, I mean, what are the kind of origins of your interest in Sondheim and? Um, company i guess the musical and then specifically this film so i originally saw sweeney todd when i was 12 or 13 um in theaters and that was my first exposure to to stephen sondheim and that film is more art the directed. burton adaptation the team burton then? yeah that that film is yeah. more art directed than it is directed but i came across the 2006 a recording of the 2006 broadway revival of company with raul esparza on Netflix when back when Netflix streaming was called Netflix instant streaming. And I was 16 or 17 at the time. And I just became deeply obsessed with the music and deeply obsessed with this piece of work that was fundamentally about like loneliness and one's kind of idea of what relationships were, especially in like a large city. I, I grew up in Connecticut. So I 
didn't have that experience, but I thought living that experience vicariously through this, like, sort of cut off or I don't know if introverted is the right word, but but deeply he is deeply inside of himself or inside of his head at all times. I was fascinated with that character. And that led me to become interested in Sondheim's broader body of work and the complexity and the joyousness and the ambivalence within his music and lyrics. And through that exploration, trying to find like all the ephemera about company more specifically, I came across these clips of original cast album company on YouTube because the film has been very hard to find and has been kind of inaccessible to consumers for almost two decades at this point because it was a re- it was released on VHS in the 90s and then it was released on DVD in 2001 but quickly went out of print for some reason and it's now available on eBay for like $95 but with the introduction or the debut of the film on Criterion Channel it obviously is like suggesting a, a new physical release so I'm glad it's being brought back into the cultural consciousness as it were. And so I would just like see these isolated clips and become like fascinated with the way that certain actors were gesticulating during their performances, even though they weren't really performing for anyone other than Sondheim and Prince and um, the recordist, the, the, the producer, Thomas Z. Shepard um, and the different members of the orchestra, it seemed to be both like a very isolating experience, which I think speaks to the themes of the musical itself and this freeing experience of being able to try to create like the perfect version of that performance. And when I moved to New York, um, I quad cinema, which was in the West village did a 35 millimeter screening. And I think that was the first time that I sat at a theater and being able to watch it all in one go without having to switch between videos or switch between links or anything. Um, and so that was like a very, very cool experience. And then IFC center did a special screening of original cast album company and the documentary now episode, original cast album co-op of which it is a parody of, of the, the, the company film is, uh, serves as the basis for the parody co-op so the and they had jay pennebecker there and john mulaney and seth myers and some of the original cast from uh some of the original cast from the production the original production of company so that was a, a it felt like coming full circle and and ever since kind of like my company obsession especially kind of like compounded itself in the last four or five years i like performed i did a special table read of it for my birthday party in 2017 or 2018 but like i will find a way to sort of i will find an excuse to shoehorn a company reference or to write about company in like a majority of my my work because it's just i think it is a a, both the documentary and the film i'm sorry both the documentary and the musical i think are just so rich and so complicated and are both they're, they're both very much rooted in the politics of the 70s, but are able to be contemporized or to be 
have its politics extrapolated into like a more contemporary socio-political landscape. I, I think it was uh, well. There's two things I'd like to ask: is is one has your has your relationship with company changed since moving to New York? When you were speaking to you, you know, the last four years, for instance, is that uh, coincidental with moving to New York? Or I'm just curious what the relationship has been like in that sense. That's a really good question. It has changed um, in, I think, a really interesting way. Because growing up in Connecticut, like you don't have the same relationships. The The maintenance that goes into those relationships doesn't exist the same because either you drive or the people that you know live in the same town. And the speed at which people's lives go... It, which is not a, a a judgment value by any means, but it's just a different speed. Like it's easier to maintain contact with your friends when you live in like a fairly suburban area, um, and people live their own lives and their ambitions are kind of like recalibrated. And there isn't, I would say that there isn't the same sort of pressure necessarily, at least where I grew up, to make your work so crucial to your identity and make this sort of linear trajectory of your success so crucial to your identity. And that linear trajectory of your career also filters into your personal life. Whereas when you move to, when you live in a metropolitan area like New York, it is a much more, to use Hal Prince's words when he was describing company in the 1970s, it's a very dehumanizing experience. Like there's a very highly mechanized, um, lens through which we live our lives in these metro areas because you you wake up and you go to work and you commute you commute on the subway and you're always going all the time and to maintain your friendships with your close personal relationships it takes a significant more amount of work because even if you live like a neighborhood over the rate at which the city goes you're you could always be distracted to do something else. There's so there are so many resources, um, the sort of like privileges and um, blinders and access to those resources notwithstanding. There's just still so much to do, so many people to see. It's just like all these different like pressure cookers and another large pressure cooker compacted into five burrows, and it's really quite wild. And and I, as I've spent the last three and a half years in New York, I've come to really value and really cherish the friendships that I have because of the maintenance that they require to be able to still kind of keep that intimacy. And one of the interesting things, about, interesting things that draws me to company is there's a, an awareness of that. There's an awareness of that maintenance. There's a, an awareness of how easily those relationships, whether they're romantic or whether they're platonic or whether they exist within the sort of liminal space that they could just disappear at any time because someone can lose interest or someone you can do something else at like the the because the the musical is made up of like a bunch of different vignettes of bobby the main character spending time with his friends um with whom he has like somewhat of a detached relationship to anyways at the end of almost every scene bobby says like when am i going to see you again because that is a question an unspoken question that's sort of like on the back of our minds all the time when, when we're hanging out with friends in New York. It's like you don't know when you'll see someone that you hold very close to your heart and who, who may be a confidant and who you may think that you 
have a, a close relationship to because in the digital realm you're texting frequently, but you may not see that person for like a couple of months. I, I think there is something uh, there is something uh, very uh, mechanistic that that we can like get into, especially in terms of the text. But I, I think just on a basic level, I find this uh, this play like the actual text relationship with. Uh, with New York itself, so, so fascinating because it is a it is a play that you know does have this certain explicit wonderlust, even though they live there. Like you know, you mm-hmm. get things like another hundred people, and um, you know, you get you get people like Marta who are you know I- invited into you know kind of an upper crust, uh, you, you know. Uh, excuse me, not manor, but like a loft, for instance, that they're Mm -hmm. not familiar with. And, you know, they see the view and are like, you know, in uh, energized and like uh, disgusted at the same time. Like it it really is such a um, a, a fascinating, um, excuse me, like uh, tension uh, between Mm -hmm. those two things. So to hear you describe this certain, you you know, like... uh, always in transit quality of your experience in New York. It it does, it does make a lot of sense. And I, and I can certainly see how that's uh, communicated. I I, I mean, Mm -hmm. um, I I think before we get a little bit deeper into the weeds though, I, um, I I leave it up to you, Cal. How would you describe the, the general conceit of this uh, musical? So, Company originally started out as a bunch of one-act plays that George Firth, the book writer, had written. And he showed it to Hal Prince, and he's like, these are all kind of good. And they were about, like, upper-middle-class people and their upper-middle-class problems, like marriage and single them and whatnot. And he's like, this should be a musical. Hal Prince was like, this should be a musical. And so he sent it to Sondheim, and that became Company. And it is, it has no particular plot or conventional narrative exactly, but... It centers around Bobby, who is turning 35 on his birthday. And on his birthday, he is sort of like reflecting on his life and on his relationships through these various vignettes with his friends who are all married or about to be married or about to be divorced. And then he is he hasn't he's not married. He's single, somewhat of a serial dater. And he also kind of like explores those parts of his life through the three women that he dates. Um, and it was fairly groundbreaking at the time because it was one of the first major examples of a concept musical, which is to say that it was, it did not have a conventional plot, as they said, but it was built around an idea. And that idea kind of fleshed out the different machinations of the play and of the musical. Um, and it's, it's really quite interesting to me because of the ways in which it has somewhat of an unfilmable quality. There's no film adaptation of company. There's only like film recordings of company. Um, the way in which that seems to be reflected in the documentary in the sense that there's no real plot to original cast album company. It's a bunch of people recording, but through those recording the album, but through those recordings, you get a sense of the different characters that are at play in the making of this album. And that becomes itself sort of an extrapolation of the different themes within the musical in the sense that it's about like these people who are, or this person rather, who are, who's really reconciling with the meaning of relationships, of loneliness, of what intimacy looks like 
between people what space means between people both in like a very literal way in the sense of like these people are in different apartments and whatnot and are sometimes very close to one another spatially Um, or they're in a booth with a bunch of people recording standing right next to each other in front of three microphones and also the space that exists kind of like temporally and emotionally between the people in a particular scene Um, you have Dean Jones singing Being Alive, which is, like, the finale number. And he does, like, two or three takes. And you can see, like, the way in which he is negotiating the space of that character kind of internally. And that song, as as it operates within the musical, is about him kind of reconciling with the space that does exist between him and the people in his life. He purposely sort of, like, detaches himself and sort of acts as a reactive character. He allows things to happen to him. He very rarely asserts himself in his own life. He's, his whole identity is based predominantly on how the people around him see him and tell him who he is, as opposed to who he has kind of conceived of himself. We haven't gotten super into the the general sense, but I, I will say, uh, so Kyle directed me specifically to the company Broadway revival starring uh, Raul Esparza, uh, which was um, uh, on the Great Performances PBS, uh, which was, excuse me, uh, was filmed for that. And that was from the 2006 revival. I do want to point out the set dressing, though, uh, of this uh, 2006 performance, because it is very spare and intimate. And that does seem to be uh, how the original um, 19... Um, excuse me, 1970 uh, version was. Uh, as At least from what I'm seeing here, um, the set dressing by uh, Boris Aronson consisted of two working elevators and various vertical platforms that emphasize the, the feelings of isolation and uh, the... Um, excuse me, like very spare, pared down feeling. And in the case of this 2006 uh, version, it it's mostly uh, two kind of um, cubist chairs, uh, a grand piano, and a, as Kyle said, uh, the cast as orchestra, which is um, just kind of an explosive thing to watch, if only because you're like, they need to take a breath. <laughs> they need to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like to like memorize all that music, and especially given that it's Sondheim, who is well known for writing very complicated music um, to play. Like people, it's hard to play Sondheim music. It's hard to sing that music, and and to be able to like do both, and to have those orchestrations arranged so the right people are playing the right instruments at the right time, while you still have like enough voices so it's so that it sounds like a body of voices. And so that sounds like a din of voices, because like one of the important parts of the opening number is that not only does it sound like a group of people singing, like we we love you, like um, we'd be so glad to see you to Bobby specifically, but it's also supposed to sound like a bunch of people in New York, just like the din of all these random people that Bobby knows and who these other people may or may not know each other. Uh, but it's supposed to kind of exist outside of an individual and sort of become a collective. And what's significant about the um, the Aronson 
uh, stage design in the ni- in 1970 was that it was designed to sort of like look like a jungle gym. Looks like all mm. these adults are sort of like playing around in a, in a way, and it has this very scaffolding esque appearance to it, uh, so that it is also reminiscent of the way in which the jungle gyms that we play on as children, when you become like an upstanding young professional or like youngish professional in the city, you're effectively sort of reenacting the same, the same sort of dynamics, but with bigger consequences, bigger like emotional consequences, essentially. Well, I think that does, I I do want to go back to this, but I I do want to pivot a little bit into um, the, uh, the original cast album company. um, Mm -hmm. Yes. Original cast album company uh, from Pennebaker. Because I, I do think in some ways it, it, it embodies that, that certain paradox, what we're talking about in the sense that, you know, it is, um, you know, it is, uh, I, I can't remember who says this, but it's, you know, like uh, that this was trying to, you know, capture lightning in a bottle. I, I think it's spoken mm. early in the, in the film, if I remember correctly. But either way, there is something, you know, it's, it's, it's very revealing in both a concrete and a, and a, and a figurative sense as well. Mm. I mean, like, you know, you're, you're seeing this behind the scenes uh, document of, um, you know, of a recording studio and, you mm-hmm. know, people at mixers and switchboards and, you know, Sondheim mm-hmm. being despondent. About mm-hmm. his, Who amongst uh, us? <laughs> Yes. Sometimes uh, just like skulking, smoking. That is a mood. <laughs> no, he is. He is absolutely a mood. And um, I, but I, I think too. It's you know, it's it's fascinating that it is such a, you know, it's such a granular, stripped down thing. But it, it's also almost you know, uh, mathematical or, or academic mm. in, in the ways that they're, you know, examining. You know, e- even like, oh, that that note, you didn't go quite enough. You know, mm. you, you did a G when it's supposed to be an A, for instance. Mm. Um, or Sondheim correcting the pronunciation of Bubby. Yes. Oh, I, I wanted to ask, so is the gender reversal, is it is it still Bobby? Just B-O-B-B-I or is it still B-O-B-B-Y? It's B-O-B-B-I-E. And he and oh, he okay. made Sondheim made some lyric changes for some of the songs, which like if you listen to them out of context on the cast album, they sound really bad. Or if you read them, there's a a Times um, piece that came out um, kind of like a couple months before it premiered in the West End, and like reading those changes, it looked horrible. But then when you see a very good production of it, like the West End production with Rosalie Craig, it's it totally believable. Like. 85% of the text is still faithful. It's just fascinating to me to reverse the gender because, I mean, as you've kind of alluded, like this is an extremely heteronormative, uh, uh, you, you know, um, mm. excuse me, a portrayal of, you know, not only the time period, but also, you know, I, you don't have to stretch real far to say yeah. uh, Bobby is is repressed and, and unable right, yeah. to experience his, his true self and, and things along those lines. <laughs> and it, it is uh, it, it is fascinating because um, apparently uh, Sondheim once asked William Goldman if he would be interested in writing a screenplay for a film version of the musical. 
And uh, his his response was um, basically on the lines of, you know, it's it's a great show, <laughs> but the main character is obviously gay, but they don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. which is uh, amazing. I, and I like, I mean, I I couldn't help but notice. I mean, I love that this is this is uh, a, a musical that is dripping with you know a possible ambiguity about that other than the single scene where he is with oh god um it is peter okay thank you uh where peter talks about his previous experiences with with men and then oh i'm sorry is that a is that an addendum in that version yeah it was not in the original production but it it, it had been cut out, oh, and it okay. was added back in for the 2006 version. Okay, that's even more interesting than that. So some people, <laughs> not to suggest that there's only one way to interpret this, but mm. is is the common perception that he's he's dealing with repression? I, I don't mean to project here, but I'm just kind no, of no, curious. No, no, no. There are there are lots of readings of that, and I don't think they're inaccurate by any means. I think they're I think. The, there are two primary ways that you can you can look at company and in terms of like the question that it is asking of Bobby um, and it's the surface level like subtext less as it were question is does Bobby want to get married and be in a relationship and and whatnot or does he not want to do that and what is he giving up because of that um, or what is he giving up if he does get married and whatnot um, and then the second question is, is Bobby just deeply self-loathing and, and in denial and deeply repressed and, and unable to kind of like grapple with, the, with um, his kind of sense of sexual identity and the way that it may pervade the way that he connects to people? If he does kind of come to that conclusion that he is queer or he is gay or, or any kind of um, identity on that spectrum... Um, is he then also going to be pressured to kind of enter into this sort of assimilationist or heteronormative framework? Um, and I think regardless of however you read Bobby or Bobby's sexuality, the question still is basically the same in terms of like, what is Bobby going to do about his sense of connectivity and his sense of intimacy with other people? Because like being queer or being gay doesn't change the same questions, or at least like in a, post, in a post-marriage equality sure. Western world post um post vaguely post liberation queer liberation um sociopolitical landscape it has come to a point where those same questions are being asked essentially um and while in the 1970s um the it may have been like relatively unique in terms of if that character is subtextually subtextually queer where does that lead him there was still enough of like there was still like enough of sort of like machine adjacent upper or like well-off mostly white gay people who were sort of orbiting around this question of like okay so now there's a sort of sense of libidinality where does that take us where do those Mm -hmm. sexual politics take us admittedly like maybe i'm like over projecting in terms of the time frame because 1970 is like immediately after the stonewall uprising and so 1970 may be like a little bit too soon but i think regardless hypothetically if you read bobby as queer he would still probably end up at some point whether in that particular the time frame of this particular musical or not 
being asked the same questions by his friends in terms of like, when are you going to get married? Like, have I got a guy for you? Like, um, you've been dating all these different men and they're all basically telling you you're a fuck boy. And I think that that sort of is able to eke out company's relevance in spite of its dated gender politics, because although it's again, gender politics are very much rooted in the 1970s. I think with this weirdly linear progression of, of how they have evolved in the United States in terms of to what degree different genders or different people um, in in different kinds of relationships are able, able to liberate themselves from those oppressive patriarchal frameworks, you still start out by like being oppressed by those frameworks. So like the in the revival, there is uh, they change the scene uh, between uh, Paul and Amy into being Paul and Jamie. So they make the Amy character who does the Patter song, Not Getting Married Today, yes. into a gay man. And so that, I think, is is really... It was a very moving experience seeing that scene because it's not just this sort of, like, jokey, maybe slightly um, misogynistic song, right? Sort of, like, reeks of the of a sort of drag persona of a, of a woman. Yeah. It becomes a question of, are you assimilating into this particular institution that is only now accepting you and is, and is designed to be exclusive and to keep people who do not necessarily have the same means or resources as those who can get married out. And if you're doing that, what are you losing of your queerness? Are you still queer? Is, is, their way to be married and to still be queer. And if you don't get married, if you decide to like not, if you decide like Jamie or Amy and that one part of the scene to not be married, are you missing out on something? Are you unable, is your sort of like relationship or your sense of intimacy with another person not necessarily as valid or, or as meaningful as other people's because other people are married and you're not. So I think the questions that company asks will continue to be at least relatively identifiable or relatively applicable as long as we live in a system that privileges people who are married either politically or materially um, or spiritually in, in any capacity. Those uh, this musical will still be relevant if we continue living in a society that privileges those things and privileges those those kinds of people. Yeah, I, I think it does have you know some of the the same you know byproducts of someone like a Douglas Sirk or you know a Nicholas Ray or you know many of those um, melodrama directors who you know uh, their their material can can very quickly be uh, extended. To, to a lot more mm. modern uh, frameworks than, you know, mm. maybe it was originally presented in. Um, but I, I, I think what I, I do want to say, though, is you, you are bringing me some, into something that I find uh, very interesting in the sense that, you know, I suppose, again, it, it can speak to the tension and the many contradictions we're dealing with here. But uh, you have this, yeah, you know, I I think a uh, language you used earlier was that this wasn't uh, escapist. This wasn't, mm. you know, it, it's not. It, it dealt with a little bit more adult things. It was, mm. you know, dealing with this uh, upper middle class. You know, it, it's um, 
uh, upper middle class problems and upper middle class people. And and mm-hmm. I think that it is it, it is interesting that the the lyrics, you know, beyond the music and, and how it's interpreted, whether, you know, it, it is in a very. I, I know classical musical style might be a. Might be a strange way to put it, but but I guess I mean very melodic, very um, you you know it's still Sondheim, it's still very complex, it's still you know it's still dealing with like you know interesting and um, excuse me very very uh, wise and and knowing wordplay and, and things like that. But I still mm-hmm. do find the fundamental text, you know, it's so acerbic. Like, you know, mm-hmm. as much yeah. as we get into even the question of, you know, what are the two interpretations of, of Bobby? So many of these characters are, you know, these certain, you know, not only archetypes, but they're... Mm representations of those, you know, certain social conventions, even less mm. than archetypes. You know, there's, there's a few people who are just so vivid. I mean, it's no, not surprising to me at all, for instance, that Joanne has, has the deep, uh, you know, cultural um, history that she has, for mm. instance. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the happiest characters in company are Maida, who is single and, I don't think would ever want to settle down. She is characterized as someone who is freewheeling and fun and enjoys life by every particular moment. She lives in the moment as, as it were. Um, and then the characters who got divorced were still together for some reason. I think the queer, the, to the me, Southern bell. Yeah. That's the, the, um, the, Oh God, Sarah and, and Peter, I, I think Susan and, and Peter, uh, Susan and Peter. Yeah. Um, but I think the queer reading of company is not that Bobby may or may not be gay or queer. I think the queer reading of company is actually, oh, this institution of marriage is making everyone miserable. And the fact that people are having to choose or someone is having to choose whether their happiness is predicated on this sort of like basically financial proposition of happiness with another person is deeply like questionable and dubious. And I think to connect that back to the Pennebaker documentary, I think and in terms of like the various productions or, or iterations and interpretations of, of company in terms of its, its figurative nature, I think doing a movie about company as opposed to doing company is the best way that you can do ah. company. Like it would, the, I, you couldn't do like a film adaptation of, of company in a conventional manner because it's a bunch of like random vignettes and you would either have to like slap on a really contrived framework or narrative framework onto it or like do it in a very straightforward way which wouldn't really make sense but to get at like the deeper truths of company in terms of the of working relationships with people and it's interesting that like you mentioned the way in which the the play the musical is about like upper middle class people and upper middle class problems and there's an irony of like watching these working actors who are for the most part by no means wealthy, but playing like sure. these wealthy characters. But anyway, in terms of, of its its figurative nature, you have a bunch of these people kind of discussing the specificities of their relationships to the material, to the writers, to the record producers, and I think that is it sets uh, like a form of intimacy that they're working through, and kind of working against in some ways, like Elaine Stritch. They are creating these 
these marriages may be on the nose, but these marriages with themselves and the work itself. And I think that being able to sort of abstract company even further is the way that you better understand and better interpret or adapt or manifest company as a text. That framing also makes this feel more subversive as, as a film. Because mm. you know, it's, it's interesting even as a philosophical question to think about how to approach a performance like this. And I, I think, for instance, about... Uh, you know, amazing grace from Sidney Pollack that finally got uh, that finally got released. You know, after you know it, it wasn't released in 1972, and you know had its own uh, very long road. But but I mention that because that is something you know that it shows the production almost in full, and this this very much jumps around like it it you know pretty fastidiously examines a few no a few moments whether it is Elaine uh, Elaine stretches jeez Elaine <laughs> stretches uh, uh, draining um, you know uh, final takes but it isn't really that you know like it's not like we are going to show you a comprehensive every second of every song like it, it, it jumps around which I think is partly due to the constraints of it was it was meant to be a pilot for a series that uh, well didn't really uh, happen due to a variety of factors but I, I think it also you know maybe I'm uh, you know I, I'm projecting backwards here but it nonetheless uh does place the, this film in in an odd way the fact that it is so stripped down but you know is is so carefully curated which i, I suppose is always the question of, of the documentary but specifically in contrast to what we're talking about in, in relation to so many interpretations and even the bare text there is something like I, oddly strange about just even offering these behind the the behind the scenes um, aspects and and you know like seeing producers directly changing dynamics mm. or you know uh, doing various things along those lines. Watching the process of putting these things together, watching any sort of rehearsal process is something that we don't necessarily get to see because it's sort of like how the meat is made basically. Um, there's a, a documentary called um, it's a, it is a documentary that is chronicling the Shakespeare in the Park production of Mother Courage with uh, Mother Courage and her children the Brecht play um, with Meryl Streep and she says to the camera that she doesn't normally allow these sort of like behind the scenes observations because that, this is where the ugly stuff happens it's like you're working through a character <laughs> and you're work you're trying to mold with your director and with your co-stars and with the other people or in, in the cast and crew, what this performance is going to be like. And having that captured on film, whether it be Mother Courage and Her Children or original cast album company, is fundamentally fascinating because it shows the sort of blemishes and it shows the search for perfection. It shows us the creation of these personas and these identities that we've become so familiar with in these kind of cultural legacies and cultural canons. Um, and I think that speaks to a lot of like 
Dave Panabaker's work, as you said, Monterey Pop and Don't Look Back. It's about like the creation of these personas and the the implicit flawed quality of them. And then you have a lot of Sondheim's work is about the creation of art and the ability to reconcile with its imperfections and the imperfections that exist within the personas that are that that go into creating them in the first place. And that's very much part of Follies. It's very much part of a Sunday in the Park of George, and Hal Prince as well. Uh, a lot of his work is involved in that and like merrily be roll along and cabaret and i think that having these three figures for whom those ideas are, are so central to their work and so central to their own artistic identity i think original cast album company becomes a document of those very concepts of how important those concepts are not only to those three particular artists but to art more broadly, art as a, as a media. It's fascinating too, in the sense that it is making something uh, something concrete that that could be, you know, not necessarily vague, but it it, it had the ability to be shaped mm-hmm. into anything. And and here you are seeing Sondheim being like, you know, especially with the Elaine Stritch uh, scene, like being like. Uh, you know, um, I, I believe the language he uses is, you know, you're you're talking when you should be singing. Right. I, and yeah. then it's, you know, at the pivotal moment where she does kind of the the I'm not sure if it's rise or a little bit before that, but she's able to go um, is, is able to pivot into talking at that point in, in a very like pointed thematic gesture. Mm-hmm. But um, like, you know, that. Is, is a sequence in itself that feels uh, so so odd, I, I guess. And, and, you know, obviously I say this from a limited uh, exposure to this uh, this this text. And, and, you know, even then that's a strange word to use for something that's a musical. <laughs> it is something so dynamic. I think it does feel so different from the other sequences in the documentary because there's such a difficulty and it requires so many takes. Whereas the, what we can see from the other songs, despite the fact that it is like a 12, 14 hour recording session is, you know, you do it in one or two takes, maybe three, everyone's fine as the evening gets longer and longer and everyone is more and more exhausted. Um, takes maybe there may be a couple more takes but you can definitely see that that the labor is kind of wearing on them and everyone knew at the time that ladies who lunch was going to be like a show-stopping number for the musical so the pressure was really on and i'm a little bit surprised that they didn't choose to record it earlier but the fact that it requires so many takes and through those multiple shots of those different takes you really get a sense of the labor that it takes to create that kind of art. I think also what's compelling is that it is also strangely reflective of the material that she's doing because a friend once quipped to me um, that one of company's problems is that it does not give back emotionally to its audience. Like a lot of the people who like the music but don't really like the musical as a whole is the complaint that it's too cold and sort of like emotionally withholding. And the way in which the record producer, um, Thomas Z. Shepard and like Hal Prince and, and Sondheim, the way that they sort of treat Stritch um, is 
is not productive. It's really unkind. It's um, not really useful in terms of helping her um, reach the heights that she needs to get to in terms of making that making that a good take. And Thomas C. Shepard was at the screening at IFC Center of, of Original Cast Album Company and, and the documentary now parody co-op. And he said he felt regret for having treated her that way because it was the producer's job to really like push people to their best but not kick them when they're down. And I thought that was really interesting because that scene is iconic. Like you don't have to know anything about company pretty much other than that song. You don't have to have seen original cast album company, especially because they'd been unavailable for so long, but like people who aren't familiar, aren't super familiar with this work, aren't even super familiar with who Elaine Stritch is, know that scene. They know her saying that gif of her saying, I'm just screaming. They know her, that image of her, like, like nearly pulling out her hair, getting so stressed. And at that point, she's like several drinks in, which she says on the audio commentary, she did out of nervousness. And and like, it is well documented her, her relationship to substance abuse. And I don't want to project anything um, onto this particular performance, but it, she herself said that she would not, she would not have had alcohol prior given the way that it affected this particular performance and so i i think the way in which this scene is able to be decontextualized both speaks to the power of sondheim's work the power of elaine strich and the power of elaine strich but also the way in which that these really excruciating moments um of hard work of the of art making can both be universalized but also flattened in a way. I think like the the this particular scene sort of like has a reputation in like extremely online gay factions of the internet because most of us like are familiar with the context. But even when it sort of like orbits or or, or it flies out of that orbit, I think that it really is a fascinating kind of testament to Hannah Baker's ability to capture a really frustrating and I think ambivalence-filled scene, a very ambivalence-filled experience of like trying to do the thing that you you know you need to do right. You, you know that the pressure is on because this is going to be like the permanent recording of this song. The more I think about this uh, musical and, you know, not only seeing it you know, taken down to its uh, smallest pieces in in terms of the songs and everything. But um, I, I think at the time I was thinking there was a superfluousness to all of these characters, and I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think all of them have their own very specific dynamics that even if they are, you know, more minor or, you know, uh, maybe not ticks, but, you know, Mm -hmm. could be seen as more uh, gimmicky and in terms, at least their most vocal attributes, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they don't have arcs, which is, I think uh, people Mm. lodge that as a complaint, but I think that's actually quite an an important um, element of the, of the musical because people don't really actually have arcs in their lives um, in the way that we can 
conventionally think of them. We narrativize our lives so that they, so that we create arcs that can be discernible. But when you're in a, when you're in a relationship, speaking as someone who's never been in a serious relationship, but in any sort of like dynamic with, with someone, there's not like a really discernible arc. You're too much in it for that to be visible or for that to be distinguishable. And you end up creating that narrative after the thing is done or after a certain point has been made where you can kind of look back and sort of illustrate something. And with regards to the selfishness that it brings out in some of the characters, I think that is also part of the the musical's overall critique of of marriage as an institution and as a framework, that it doesn't necessarily help people become more full. It sometimes allows people to become more complacent in who they are or who they think they are. It allows the worst habits to kind of come out. And the little things you do together, I think, ends up becoming a song of, like, to what extent can you make those that complacency or those ha- bad habits um, that have really sort of become more explicit work complementary to another person? You notice that the song isn't really about good qualities in people. It's about the things that may- make a relationship or marriage functional enough that you can go on to the next day. And, and can I ask you a question? Sure, please. Did you did you watch this with your partner? Uh, no. She uh, watched uh, parts of it, um, but she just wasn't that into it. Uh, yeah, my partner, she... It, it's not that she, um, like, really hated it or, or anything, and she found certain things interesting, but I think she's... She's absolutely someone who wants to see, um, whether it's, you know, uh, ballet, whether it's opera, whether it's musicals, whether it's just theater, she's very much someone who wants to see that in person. And, and I'm to an extent that, like, I, mm-hmm. I don't particularly like, um, uh, you know, directed, uh, shots perform. I know there's another, uh, language I'm using there for like uh, film theater performances. Yes. Thank you. Filmed theater performances, a, a very easy way to describe that <laughs> filmed theater performances are, are something too, that I have, uh, less experience with and don't particularly mm. like in part because yeah. things like blocking and, um, you know, a certain, certain nuances in body language, which is something I already just, you know, I love so much in, in film, um, is, is something that's sometimes lost to me, which is in part why I really liked the particular production or excuse me, the particular version you sent to me because it mm. was that single place. You could very much get a sense of, of body language and I think when I'm just watching other things, I just, uh, I can detach too easily. I also really like things that are about detachment. So, uh, <laughs> so that the fact that you're saying your, uh, you know, friend said this was emotionally withholding. I was like, okay, what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, he's a huge company fan. He, he, he read my like. Film, my screenplay adaptation. So he's he's a good one. He he loves company. We were he we. I'm like in a group chat with with two people who are like one one is a, a 
an evolutionary biologist and the other is like an epidemiologist and they both have like postdoc degrees and I'm the college dropout and we both we all three love musical theater and it's like I'm the idiot in the group um, but we're all gonna go see the new productions of West Side Story and Company together but then COVID hit so it's quite oh, sad I, I, I'm I, I'm curious in, in regards to that too I mean how do you think your um you know, your experience with writing about film and, you know, specifically visual arts, do you think that's informed your view towards this play in a different way than, you know, other friends who are, who are primarily looking at it through the lens of musical theater? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I will say that I grew up liking musical theater, um, it, and I, I went to musicals with my mother and I like going to see plays and musicals in New York. Um, but I do, but you're right in the sense that writing about film and, and being primarily interested in film gives me a very different vocabulary. But I think that different mm-hmm. vocabulary is still fairly applicable when you're talking about theater. I think there are maybe some differences in terms and I think there may be specificities that I may not necessarily be keyed into but because a lot of my favorite films are about abandonment, are about detachment, are about isolation, are about emotional withholding, um, et cetera, et cetera, I think that serves as sort of a groundwork in terms of being able to kind of cultivate a glossary or, or um, an index of, if not specifically terms, then like specific reference points of how to interpret or how to um contextualize company in like a a broader history of art whether it be theater art or film art that tackles these ideas and these issues oh okay yeah i i mean i can it is interesting watching this and and not only in the jumps you can make to camp and in terms of some of these uh, deliveries and, you know, some Mm. of the, uh, some of the ways, um, you know, as you're saying that they're working with blocking and and things like that, I I can definitely see the experiences there. But I, I think, I, I think it was, I mean, I, I was very vocal about my worry about, talking to you about this and uh, in part because yeah I mean it's it's that language of theater and that certain uh, you know present interpretation is something that is you know it, I find it fascinating but also terrifying in the sense that uh, nothing is fixed and so I feel right, like any right. interpretation I offer, uh, it feels immediately, you know, uh, obsolete. <laughs> no, <way. laughs> no, no. I, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I think what's important when you're talking about art, regardless of like what your um, knowledge of a particular form is, is that um, that you're just want to be critically engaged with it, and that you're kind of approaching it in good faith and, and willing to grapple with it as you would any other kind of art text or artifact. And as a final question, I think you answered this earlier, but is there anyone you think who could do a good film version of Company? And if you were going to dreamcast a director or Bobby, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, you said you did a screenplay adaptation. 
I did do a screenplay adaptation as an experiment and as sort of like a challenge to myself because I had been I had been obsessed with company for a long time and in 2015 um, the marriage equality ruling happened and I thought that would be like a really interesting opportunity to sort of explore the queer reading of Bobby and if Bobby is bisexual or queer if he gets married um, if he what is he losing of his queerness? And if he stays single, like, is he not being validated in some way? And it, it's, it's, I think, very similar. Um, it, it, I think a lot of my interest uh, in the project sort of, like, ended up being funneled inadvertently into Marion Elliott's interpretation of the Paul mm-hmm. Amy or Paul Jamie scene. Um, but... I wrote like a very, very Brechtian sort of like yes. Vanya and 42nd Street-ish screenplay around Thanksgiving um, where like it's a bunch of people putting on company and they're sort of like experimenting with it and talking through the characters and, and working through its ideas as they're giving the performance. And um, if I were to dream cast a director, I like it. In, I wrote a piece about Noah Baumbach in November because Being Alive is featured in Marriage Story as sure. is You Could Drive a Person Crazy. And those two songs sort of like bookend, bookend a section of the film. And I wrote a piece that was sort of arguing that Noah Baumbach has been making a company movie his entire career, basically. Um, if you want, again, to like say that a figurative or an abstraction of company is the best way to approach company as opposed to a straightforward or like literal adaptation of it. Um, and I think lady, I think um, Greta Gerwig has been making merely we roll along like for part of her career. And so with that in mind, there's like a temptation to say no about back because he has the sort of like New York base of understanding how ruthless it can be and how it can really shape your perception of connectivity and, and intimacy. Um, but I uh, almost feel like that's cheating because I already wrote about him, but it would be like, it would be someone like him or someone mm. like Todd Haynes who sort of gets at this idea of performativity within relationships and um, performative performativity in the sense of like, you are so locked into these roles or these little mannerisms or these, these habits that you do that they create your identity through that performance they they become the material idea of your identity they become the material thing of your identity which is it it's been getting on my nerves lately the way in which the word performative has been being used um in the last like year or so um but like performativity in the judith butler senses those small things and small actions that become material or literal it's sort of like when you're um when like a a gay person is at a gay bar the way in which they will lean at the bar and ask for a drink is performative masculinity or performative gay masculinity the way in which bobby is totally disengaged from all these characters and is the only person in the 2006 production who doesn't play an instrument until the very end the way in which he sort of like is disengaged and sort of is leaning back away from people. That is the way in which that is his performativity. That is his performative masculinity. Um, and so I think Todd Haynes, who really understands gender performativity because he was yeah. a semiotics major at Brown, 
um, I think he would be a really interesting uh, person to play. I, I mean, person to direct company as he also has a really clear understanding of like theatrics and um, of role playing. I think Velvet Goldmine is an incredible film about the different drag personas that we create in public and private. Uh, but and my dream bobbies are two. I have two dream bobbies, oh, and okay. one is Ben Whishaw, um, who I think we kind of lend to the sort of fey and ambiguous reading of sure. of Bobby's sexuality, and then the other one would be Jennifer Aniston. Okay, well, why Jennifer Aniston? Jennifer Aniston is my is like my dream Bobby because she I, I know that she like technically doesn't sing. Um, because and I don't think that matters because I think Sondheim usually cares more about the way in which people perform these roles and perform these songs rather than like perfect singing quality. And I know that she is technically older than 35, but she has been the poster child for is a woman unhappy or miserable because she's not married hmm. and doesn't have kids ever since like the nineties when she was on French, she has been on tabloid covers <laughs> for years speculating about her own happiness because of her marital status and her, her childbearing status. And I think it would be such a, a piece of metacasting to have her play a character who is going through or being faced with the, and confronted with the same expectations from her friends and from the people around her. Um, and, and, She's also an incredibly versatile performer, which I don't think she gets enough credit for. Uh, I love that the morning show is sort of like ha- allowing us to have a Jennifer Aniston, Aniston, <laughs> absolutely. I'm butchering that portmanteau, no, sir. <laughs> but like even even on Friends, she was able to change the emotional beat of a single line on a particular word. She's able to make a laugh land as a punchline to a joke or as a crucial dramatic and emotional beat. And I think she's fantastic in films like the goodbye girl. Um, yes. She's great. in um, life of crime, which is that like unofficial sequel to uh, Jackie Brown or prequel. I don't remember which, but she, and she's really good in a film called um, the object of my affection, which is about a woman who had, who, kind of develops a deep emotional romantic feelings for her gay best friend. And I think it, it serves as this like fascinating deconstruction of that archetypal relationship and also the flaws of like wanting um, straight or, or like heteronormative companionship and, and, and the way in which that institutionally is flawed. So I think she is like a, a perfect kind of encapsulation of a lot of what company can be, be read about. Yeah, no, I oh, that would be great, and and I think it would be then so cathartic to see where the where the play ends too. I mean, I mean, it's yeah, it's such mm-hmm. a, an interesting, you know, it, it's a triumphant moment that's still undergirded with with a certain, you know, uh, a, a certain realization of the passage of time. The last thing I like to do on the podcast is I like to kind of give. Uh, listeners a chance for you know either a uh, thematic extension or a um, 
you know, even even an artist extension. And, you know, we're obviously we're dealing with a, a very prolific playwright here and a writer, uh, you know, Harold, or a co-writer, I should say, Harold Prince as well. So I, I understand that there's a lot of different places you could go. But to kind of give uh, listeners who might not be familiar with Sondheim, where would you suggest what would what play or uh, what reading or you know, any kind of medium would you suggest that uh, a listener would go I to think, next? I um, think Sweeney Todd would be interesting to go to next. It was the it, 2007 film, film adaptation directed by Tim Burton. And it's, it is not a great film by any means, um, but I do think that it is useful as far as exposure goes. Um, it does sort of pare down some of the songs in a way that I don't think is necessarily helpful for kind of the whole text, but I think it's, it at least has like an angle because the problem with into the woods, the um, Rob Marshall film from 2014 is that it doesn't really have an opinion or, or an angle about the material. And it's also Disney. So it's sort of, it also flattens material substantially, but Tim Burton does have like a very specific idea of who these characters are and what their aesthetic, their sort of aestheticism is. Um, so Sweeney Todd would be good. There's also a, a TV musical that Stephen Sondheim wrote with, um, William Goldman, I think called Evening Primrose. And it's based on a novella and it's about this young poet who escapes from the world, um, into an apartment store to live and learns that there are other people living in the department store. And Anthony Perkins stars in it, and also um, the woman who played Liesl in The Sound of Music. And it's really quite delightful and very, very moving. Yeah, no, I... I, I do think it's it's interesting that you recommended Sweeney Todd, as, as I've heard um, some, you know, self-professed theater nerds uh, really uh, uh, rue the day that that film ever came out. <laughs> I don't think it's as bad as people say it is, but I, I it does have flaws. But I, I it is such a useful entry point for Sondheim's work because it is a real grappling with the attempt to marry or combine the aestheticism of Tim Burton and his particular um, cinematic approach with the complexity of Stephen Sondheim's music. And I think there are moments in which it is actually fairly successful. Um, There are certain scenes in which it does work. I think the the scene where they do the Joanna Quintent, even, even though they cut out one part of of that part of the, of the song, because it's supposed to be like, four vocal pieces and they make it three Mm. Um, quartet rather. Uh, I think that is actually like a a really interesting example of how to adapt a musical sequence from a stage show to film that you have to have a very, you have to have a specific idea of what it's supposed to exist in another form. Yeah. I mean, that is certainly something that is uh, very appealing to me. Um, in a sense, because you know, I've I've always been a person where I I want to see different interpretations. I want to see people, you know, mess with the with the text. Which you know, as as this conversation has shown, there, it, it seems like there are many people throughout history have have 
history might be a little extreme, <laughs> but throughout the, <laughs> uh, throughout the time that uh, people have been adapting it, it they found uh, different ways to, you know, um, subvert and, and mutate with while still, you know, paying respect to the uh, the original text. Finally, I, I would like to thank again uh, Mubi for their sponsorship. Uh, you can again try a 30-day trial of Mubi uh, by going to uh, mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage. And Kyle, if people want to follow your work, uh, where can they find you these days? They can find me tweeting the most unhinged things on Twitter at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. Um, and you can find my work all over the internet at Paste Magazine, Slate, New- the New York Times, and I just made myself a new website. So if you want to go to <laughs> tilekerner.com, I'd appreciate it because... And we need we need some views just like to make sure that I didn't waste one hundred forty dollars. Oh no! Yes, help help Kyle feel like he did not waste one hundred and forty dollars. Yeah. Are, are there any recent uh, pieces that you'd like to plug? Yeah, I just wrote a piece uh, for Paste Magazine about Arthur J. Brisson's Passing Strangers, um, Equation to an Unknown, and Evan Purchell's collage essay film ask anybody which uh, stitches together over a hundred different um gay vintage gay porn films together to kind of create this this essay and i wrote about it in the context of the way in which um these films are sort of testaments to the way that sexual spaces were also social spaces and vice versa and how that's really i think a crucial part of lgbtq history especially for gay and queer men and how like a lot of recent narratives and contemporary american um queer films and gay films tend to want to erase that fact and tend to want to erase the the sort of political um importance of having social spaces also be sexual spaces and, and being ways to foster community between uh queer people yeah, everybody go go read that paste article. You can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Snydell, uh, Letterbox, um, and okay, uh, as far as podcasts, um, I am on the regular film stage show. Our next episode on that will be Relic with Amanda Waltz. And as far as intermission goes, uh, that will be... Kelly Reichert's Certain Women with Orla Smith from 7th Row. So look forward to that. Thank you again uh, to everyone who listened. Thank you, Kyle, for joining me uh, this week. Thank you so much for having me. I also want to shout out my wife, Fung Lei. She's not really my wife, but she's she was on an episode and she was brilliant and I adore her. Yes, she is fantastic and extremely smart. And uh, yeah, I, I thank her for her time. And for talking about uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, The Meetings of Anna, which has an, which usually has a French name that I'm not going to say. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bobby. Bobby. Bobby, baby. Bobby, baby. Robbie. Robbie, darling. Bobby, baby.
Bobby, been trying Bobby, to call Bobby, you. Baby. Bobby, Bobby, and your love got Bravo. to tell. Bobby, love, Bobby, honey, Bobby, we be trying, darling. Bobby, baby, Bobby, 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 B